Well, good morning, Millington family. And uh, fellow fathers, happy Father's Day. As I've thought about Father's Day, uh, I've kind of come to the conclusion that out of the days that honor parents, uh, Father's Day is definitely in the top two. <laughs> Maybe we'd all uh, agree <laughs> with that. And, uh, but, you know, Mother's Day, I can remember having the privilege of being in a delivery room when my firstborn, Laura, was born and thinking, wow, every day should be Mother's Day. <laughs> so I imagine there would be a couple amens. So as a father, uh, first we'll say to the mothers, uh, thank you for, uh, for making it all possible. Couldn't have done it without you. Uh, and fathers, fathers, um, I think you would say with me, one of the greatest joys, challenges, privileges, and with great privilege comes great responsibility. And so here we are, and we've been going through Genesis, and we've been looking at family, and we're at this Genesis chapter 49, where it's at the end of Jacob's life. Jacob literally, he's gathered his sons around. Um, He's about to die, and in fact, Scripture tells us that shortly after this, he curled up his legs and he, and he passed away. Um, it's very interesting because we have him gathering his sons, the sons of Jacob, and reflected here in this chapter the identity that we all get from family. The meaning of name, as you know, is very, very important in Scripture, which is actually very interesting. You know what? The name Jacob means, like when you think of the name Edward, you don't think, oh, that means guardian. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, no, Jacob, then it wasn't just, oh, that sounds nice. Jacob was deceiver. Could you imagine going to a business meeting? Hi, what's your name? Deceiver. <laughs> Ooh, things just got awkward. <laughs> Jacob. Identity, meaning sons of Jacob. The identity, the father, Jacob, gathering around and blessing them. And what we have, which has been reinforced of what we all know, is that family has this tremendously profound influence of identity, of meaning. And the question that we're going to ask this morning is, first of all, as we've been going through, what we see is that family has been a place of such dysfunction. I mean, Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob, and he poured a lifetime of dysfunction into Jacob. Am I valuable? You know, who, who am I? And then Jacob loved Joseph more than all the brothers, and poured a lifetime of dysfunction into those brothers. And these are the patriarchs. Eli, Samuel, David. Great men used by God. And on the parenting scale, would you want them as a dad? The reality is, is that family is challenging. And one of the reasons, and we've, since my brother's here, I'm going to break out an oldie. What is, the, what is the definition of marriage? Now, what is marriage? To love, the dream within the dream, 
the definition of marriage is two flawed people living in such close proximity that you can't hide the flaws. <laughs> oh, that's real romantic, Ed. That's marriage. That's family. And we might have our Facebook lives. And how many homes do you think there's been? Would you kids be quiet? I'm trying to post on Facebook. <laughs> the whole dynamic of what's true. Family you can't hide. Now you can hide it, but you can't hide. It's real and it's true. The dysfunction that comes in. We're going to talk about this because you see it so vividly. The scripture is so unsentimental. It is so just authentic. It holds family up. And we're going to talk about this. It holds family up, and yet it's so authentic about what it is and the challenge. And so the question I'm going to ask, and by the way, if you go home, we're not going to read Genesis 49 today, but if you go home and read it, you're going to see. It's reflecting back both the joy and the challenge that comes from family. The, the, the heartache and the blessing that comes from family. So the question that I asked as I was looking at this is, why? Why within family are expressions of sacrificial love so life-giving and so nourishing and so foundational to who we are? And why is it things of betrayal and things that are heartbreaking so profoundly devastating? Why is that? Why is family so wired into the fabric of who we are? Either way, for identity and meaning. And to discuss this, not surprisingly, we're going to go back to the beginning. Like literally the beginning. Scripture begins with God. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. And then we have chapter 1. Day two, day three, day one, two, three, four, five, six, where the Lord is creating the world, the universe, all that is. Now, I'm going to say this, hopefully carefully and respectfully, much of the recent focus on the studying of chapters one in the conversation has been on scheduling, seven days, and the focus being on time and materials. So with that focus, when you get to verse 7, uh, the 7th the day, and I'll read that. By the 7th day, God finished the work that he had been doing. So on the 7th day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the 7th day and sanctified it because on, the, on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So, if the focus of chapter 1 is on materials and scheduling, then when God gets and he rests, it's, I'm done. Six days, on time, under budget. I'm taking Saturday off. And God rests. Now, the point is, of this is not, can God do this? With his power and his brilliance, six seconds isn't an issue. But the point of chapter one is not on time and materials. It's not on creation. It's on God himself. That's the point of chapter one. And what we learn, 
what we learn in chapter one is about God and his word. Where his word is, there's life. Where his word is, there's new creation. Where his word is, there's light. In the beginning, scripture says Elohim. Elohim, which is plural for God, which it almost sounds like Christian propaganda. Really? God, three persons or more? Yes, in the beginning, God, plural, said, let us make man in our image. What we're getting are glimpses whereas many will say, that's blasphemy, that within God there would be persons What scripture is holding out is that at the heart of the universe is not sheer power or sheer brilliance, but at the heart of the universe is friendship, camaraderie, love. Let us make man in our image. Why did God make you? It's a fair question, right? The question. Why did he make you? So you can do some good deeds, big outsourcing project, let's make some men go do some things. This is where we get to the importance of understanding that chapter one is about the God. The God who made man, why? Why? Let's go on to the next slide. When he made man, he made him in the likeness of God. He made in his image, and he created us male and female, and he blessed them, and he named them. What is he doing here on the seventh day? All this blessing and this sanctifying. This is what he's doing. I'm going to use this old picture I thought of a few years ago. Maybe it'll help. Suppose there's a couple, and they've been together for a while, long enough. And one Christmas Eve, the guy hands his girlfriend a small, crushed, black velvet box. And she opens it up, and inside is beautiful diamond carrot earrings. What is he saying besides, I'm an idiot? (laughs) What he's saying in our culture is, I'm willing to give you stuff, but not myself. The blessing of God is not stuff. The blessing of God is God himself. His own presence. And this is what's occurring on the seventh day. God is blessing. God is giving himself. God is sanctifying. What Exodus goes on to tell us is, it's it's me and you. I have created this world. And it starts from way out all the way in to God creating this world and placing a garden. And in the garden, who did he put? Man. A place where we can survive. Why? Why? Because if you're going to put a verse over Genesis 1, it would be this. Next slide. God's dwelling place. That's what's happening. 
God resting. This is a temple. God is resting. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. This is the Lord's heart from the very beginning. I want to give you myself. Why does God do this? Why did God make you? To quote my mother again, I love this quote, because God is love, and love loves to love. Amen. You diagram that sentence. Love loves to love. In fact, another thing she said when she had the privilege of having eight, she was asked, how do you divide your love among so many? And she said, oh, that's not the math of love. Love doesn't divide. Love multiplies. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> but yes, love multiplies. That's why the Lord made us. And we get this fascinating picture into life in the garden in the next slide. It says this, and the Lord God formed man, uh, formed out of the ground all the wild beasts, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Anybody ever thought about that? I mean, what's going on here? Is God stuck? <laughs> hey, yo, Adam, a little help. No, what it is is that's what you do when you love someone. You want to be with them. You want to do things to share and to get to know them. And what God was doing is he had invited Adam and Eve into the adventure of life with him. This was not hearts and clouds stuff. He said, I'm giving you dominion. Go and explore and settle. And, and no one has ever looked through a telescope and found a do not enter sign. No one has ever looked through a microscope and said, keep out. God invited mankind into the journey of adventure of life with him. And he made us. It's not good that man should be alone. He made us to enjoy each other with him. And guess what? Children, true, children were not a product of the fall. <laughs> Which is a whole lot funnier when I wrote that in my room. But we, <laughs> we don't read about children until after the fall. But the reality is, that was God's design all along. That you're going to be fruitful and multiply. And parents, we have the privilege of partnering with God, reflecting who he is to our children. That's God's design. And sadly, that's not where we are. As we all know, in great economy, and we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but with great economy of words, Scripture in Genesis 3 tells us about the poison that entered our hearts. The enemy began by attacking God's word, that God can't really be trusted, and then to attack God himself, that God is not good, that God can't be trusted. And we all live in the darkness that came in and has infected. And we turned away from the light and turned away from the light and when you turn away from life, there's death. When you turn away from light, 
there's darkness, and we see the undeniable brokenness that tears our world, that disintegrates relationships, that disintegrates lives. And we've been talking about this, the dysfunction within family. But I'd like to take a moment this morning and talk about one group in particular through whom the fall and the brokenness of this world has disproportionately heartbreaking consequence. Because when we talk about dysfunctional family, it presumes something, doesn't it? It presumes that you have a family to be dysfunctional. What the heartache and the groaning and the brokenness of this world has meant for one particular group of people is that they are born into abandonment. There is no family. A child who's born alone, and sometimes it's the heartache of death that produces the abandonment. Sometimes it's forsakenness. Sometimes it's abandonment that's born out of desperation. Either way, to be born into this world alone. And when we consider the fall and what God designed, you know, one of the small details, but so wonderful, is that God created this world with abundance. The Lord said, of every tree, you may freely eat abundance, but now with the fall, there's scarcity and there's immense poverty. And if you were born with nobody, almost always you are going to be born into scarcity. Scarcity of resource without the ability of resource and sometimes even for the basic necessity. And sometimes there's well-meaning staff, caring staff looking out for you, but the need is generally so under-resourced and the need is so overwhelming. The staff do the best they can, but they're limited. And then, of course, there's other staff whose hearts are in a different place and and they're not well-meaning. And society as a whole, as we look to label, who are you? Well, you are below. And to be born without a family is often to be born to know what contempt is. To go out into the world and to be held in contempt in your community. And then one of the additional heartaches that goes along with that is one of the things that we have the privilege of doing as parents is to provide resource, is to be an advocate when our child comes home and they've been abused or they've been put down, they've been held in contempt, the parent's heart rises up to say, no, that's not who you are. You are valuable. I am going to be your advocate. To be an orphan is to have no advocate. To be alone in the cry that comes up from the heart of every human being and it comes flowing all the way through from Genesis on. Am I valuable? Am I worth being celebrated? That is, in our, even in our broken and flawed ways as fathers, as mothers, right? One of the principal privileges that we have is to communicate to our children, you are valuable. 
You are precious. And to the one born into abandonment, there is often no heart, no voice to speak, to say you are valuable. And this is the heartache of this world. And what orphans bear so disproportionately, their children, their infants, their children. And yet so much of the weight of the heartache of this world is born in their little hearts. And yet many will look and say, this is the reality of the universe. There's no one. We are accidental, cosmic accidents. We're here. We're going to go. There's no one out there. There's no one that cares Is that what's true? Is that what's true? Well, this has been a question that's been on humanity's heart for a long time. Are we alone in the universe? What's interesting is that Genesis begins with a God who made, a God who made. And if I gave you the lens, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Now go read the rest of the Old Testament what you're going to see is over and over the heart of God saying, I will be your God and you'll be my people and I am going to make a way for that to happen over and over. And then in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John comes into the darkness and he drops an explosion. John begins, as you see on the slide, John isn't just reminding us of Genesis. John is doing a direct recall. It's like, in the beginning, the sequel. (laughs) This time, it's personal. In the beginning. And the scripture in Genesis says, God, Elohim. And John takes this, and he expands it out. He says, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Point. John, you've made your point. He goes on. He was with God in the beginning. John, you're repeating yourself. You need an editor. No. The Spirit is saying, this is really important. Before we get to all the other stuff, before we get to the creation There's something critically important that Spirit wants us to understand is that before created, there was witness. There was the Father with the Son, the Word with God. And out of this heart of camaraderie and friendship that's at the center of the universe, Scripture goes on to say, Genesis 1, God created, again, John extrapolates it in the spirit. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Interesting way to say it twice again. You mean every time you look through the telescope, everything you see, he made it? Yep. Every time you look through the microscope, the brilliance? Yep. Everything? Mm-hmm. You, me, everything. He says, everything. And then John drops this bomb, that this God who made all things, all the power and all the brilliance became small and the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. To which every human, every religion, every philosophy can engage with this with scintillating hope or get angry to the point of wanting to kill somebody. You've got to be kidding. God became small and became a man. Who saw this plot twist coming? Well, it's one of those things like any great story. You look back and it's like, oh, I didn't see that. I didn't see that. I had a few. I'm just going to mention the one like when the Lord said, tabernacle. Hey, and the Lord said to the Jewish people, make me a tabernacle. I'm going to come down and dwell it. My presence will be with you. But on the outside of the tabernacle, I want you to put badger skin. What? God, this is going to be where you're going to dwell. Badger skin. You need something royal, something beautiful. And God says, no, trust me. Cover it with normal skin. Because on the outside is going to be badger skin, but on the inside is going to be the power and the presence of God. What the scripture says is the Lord Jesus outside was skin, but on the inside, the power and presence of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, Jesus, why are you doing this? And we'll let the scriptures tell yourself. The Lord Jesus says, I came to reveal the Father. I came not to serve, but not, not to be served, but to serve Christ Jesus in very nature, God. He made himself a man, and becoming a man, he became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. And again, Lord Jesus, why would you do this? Why? Well, he tells us what motivated him. He did it for joy. For joy. You humbled yourself and became a servant and you went to death on a cross for joy? Yeah. And Paul tells us in Corinthians what Jesus was doing was he was taking on all of the enemies that have brought the disintegration in this world. All of the darkness, all of the disintegration. He was made sin who knew no sin. And what Paul can tell us in resurrection was grave, where's your victory? Sin, grave, where's your victory? Hell, Jesus Christ, in becoming a man, went and accomplished something that his power, all of his other powers couldn't accomplish. In death, he earned the ability to forgive the ability to reconcile the world back to himself and the Father. And so here we have in the Lord Jesus, the greatest king fighting the greatest battle over sin and death. I mean, let's face it, final seven games in, in NBA, they're a moment, but they're nothing. Super Bowls, etc. This is the real war, life and death, and Jesus enters and wins, and here he is, the greatest king, winning the greatest victory, sin and death and hell, and how does the greatest king look to begin his victory celebration? He finds one woman. Whether she had been an orphan or not, we don't know. People conjecture a lot about her. What we do know is that she had had seven demons cast out, so she probably was pretty alone living with seven demons. But she met Jesus. 
And the Lord Jesus loved her. And not only did he redeem her and forgive her, but when the great king began his victory tour, you know who he went and found? Mary. And he called her by name, and this is what he had to declare. You know what my great victory is? I'm going to my father and to your father. My God and to your God. This is the joy that motivated the Lord Jesus. Next slide. This is the heart of our God being revealed. As we said in Genesis, this is what you find in Revelation. Do you know what God is celebrating in Revelation? God is celebrating the vision that he had in Genesis. I'm going to create a place where I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And there's a bit of a horrific detour that occurred. But what God has done, as scripture tells us in Revelation 5, in the midst of the throne is a lamb. A lamb is a lion. The greatest, most powerful person in the universe is on the throne. And John turns to see the lion. And it's a lamb. The one on the highest throne in the universe is the one who died to be our savior. And now out of the throne comes this voice. Look, God's dwelling place is among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his God. He will be their God. They will be his people. This is the heart of God from beginning to end. Amen. Creating family. Creating us and him as God. The next slide. So the, I love this. This is what the scripture says about our future. What is your future? Your future is the face of the Lord Jesus. Not heaven. Like we talked about before. Heaven, harps, clouds. We're going to get used to gold streets. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus. And us. Redeemed in him. What can prepare you for this moment? And they will see his face. I mean, first of all, consider this. We're going to see his face. It's not like, oh, there's been a Jesus sighting in Sector 7G. Let's go get autographs. They will see his face. Nothing can prepare us for the power of what it, that's going to be. But what can also prepare you when life tells us windows are the eye to the soul? To look into the eyes of the one who loved you before the world was. Who loved you and gave himself for you. That's the future. And his name will be in their foreheads. Ah, oh, wow, we're going to get cool tattoos. What the Lord is saying is, you are mine. You are mine forever. I'm the one who gives you identity. I'm the one who gives you meaning. And look at this next little verse. This is one of those little, and I just love it. And I'm going to give you a new name, he says. A new name that's no, only known by me and you. Isn't that awesome? The Lord is the Lord of the universe. He's the Lord of the redeemed multitudes. And he's you. You and the Lord are going to have secrets. Because that's who he is. He loves you. And he loves the world. And he loves you. This is the heart of God. 
Next slide, family. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. That's what the everything is. The great apostle Paul, all the theology, all the doctrine, do you know what he declares with joy? He says this in Romans, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship whereby we cry, Abba, Father. This is what it's all about. The heart that's behind the universe is not just power. It's not just brilliance. It's a heart of a father. A heart of a father and the heart of a savior. And this is our calling. And I want you to, if you could, recognize something right here. Adoption. We are all adopted. We're all adopted. Every single one of us were without hope. Every single one of us were without strength. Every single one of us, the Lord said, I'm going to prepare a place for you in the Father's house. Every single one of us was pursued when we didn't deserve it. Every single one of us has been embraced by a Savior who is faithful and true. That's his name. And every single one of us has been brought into the home of the Father. That is adoption. And adoption is at the heart of all that our Lord is about. Because that is his heart. That's who we all are. Adopted. So into our uh, lives as we have the privilege of being parents and we've been in prayer about for years lord how do you want us to serve how what would you like us to do one day a friend brought to our attention a very specific prayer very specific request, would we consider there was a girl who had been born into the heartache of abandonment and would we consider is there room in our family to be family to a girl who had none? And it was one of those Times that we'd wrestled with things like this in the past that when Sharon came and brought it to my attention, it just seemed within our hearts that the Spirit of the Lord resonated in us and said, yes. But at this point, Sharon and I were two of seven, and we are a family. And so we brought this thought and this prayer to our children. And with unanimous voice, Eddie and Emma and Laura and Rachel and Luke said, yes, we want to be family. And as the Lord helps us to someone who only knew abandonment to be a reflection of our Lord who says, we will never 
leave you or forsake you, to be a reflection of a father. I go to my father and your father to be a reflection to the fatherless, to the heart of a person. Am I worth celebrating? Yes, you are worth celebrating. Because as the Father has loved us, so we want to love you. And I will say that as the Lord has given us this privilege, the privilege of our family to serve the Lord and to receive Mei Ping as daughter and sister into our family is one of the greatest privileges that the Lord has allowed us to serve him with. And we are so very, very grateful. And how the privilege of loving her has been so instructive to us in the heart of our Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that one day she will know just how deeply she is loved by her Savior and her Father. And I don't know how the Lord will call you. We're all called differently and we wrestle with different things. But one thing we can say is we consider all that the gospel is and all of the Father's heart for family. As we consider those in abandonment as children, we can see how what James would say that to care for the abandoned child in whatever capacity the Lord would call, to care for the abandoned child is to purely reflect the heart of the gospel of our Lord for us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. But I'd like to close with these two thoughts. First of all, we've been hearing about the Lord's desire for us as family. The Lord Jesus has accomplished everything, everything to make us his. He's bought us, bought, redeemed. He's done everything. And now what he says is, do you want to become his child? He's opened the door. He says, here's how, receive me. So as many as receive him, he gives the authority to become the children of God. It's fantastic. And it's yours should you want it. And the final point that I'd like to make is this. In the next slide. The scripture says the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. It goes on to say, and we beheld his glory. The glory of the one and only of the father. Sorry, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And here it is, full of grace and truth. One of the things we said at the beginning is that family is a place for truth. And our brokenness, sometimes it can be very hard. But when we see the Lord Jesus Christ, he knows us. And what the gospel tells us, he is committed to us. He is full of grace and truth. And he deals with us in grace. And so what he calls our families to be is a place of grace. It is a place of truth. But now there's this resource to be a place of grace. And when we know that the other person, like the Lord Jesus, is our advocate, and they're not out just to try to beat us, but rather to help us grow and to love us, it makes all the difference in the world.
So the Lord Jesus says, as I have loved you and made you my children, so now you love each other with grace and with truth. Amen.